hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 1623 in Patuxet Village. The newcomers call it Plymouth. News travels fast, and it's reached your wee too even before you wake up. Your sister shouts in your ear, Newtow's back! You run outside together. Newtow is the village sachem, and he's returned from his first meeting with the visitors from across the water. Newtow's maybe twice your age, so still very young but his mother's illness forced her to hand off leadership early. You remember when he used to run alongside you and your friends. Seeing him standing in the village center now, you realize how much bigger he's become. Even his clothing is different. He wears a fine fur mantle with his mother's wampum beads, and he carries her walking stick. Half a dozen tribal elders surround him, your father among them. They carry wonderful things. Things you've never seen before. Colorful fabrics, copper pots, glass beads, and a shiny metal knife. You crane for a closer look as Newtow addresses the crowd. He says the visitors send greetings and, gesturing to his advisors, gifts. Newtow's mother established a good rapport with the visitors two summers ago, when they numbered maybe a hundred. Only fifty or so remain now. Sickness and famine took the others. Newtow says he wants to address this problem ahead of the coming winter, but he can't do it without the tribe's support. The adults murmur in hushed tones. An older woman steps forward and asks what kind of help. Newtow says he would send a delegation to live among the visitors to teach them how to live in our lands, which are strange to them. The collective sigh of relief is audible. Your father often spoke of his fears that one day your people would need to make war with the visitors over food. But this is not that day. And it looks like that day may never come. The visitors are too few and too feeble. The older woman is the first to volunteer. Then others step forward. They ask Nutao his plan, which he is all too happy to share. His people show respect, sitting down to listen to him. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. Today, I'm joined by Alec Weitzel a PhD candidate in anthropology who identifies as a human ecologist. And what that means is that he's interested in how humans adapt to their environment and how the environment is shaped by human activity. Pretty timely stuff, even though we'll focus today on the 17th century Plymouth colony, founded 400 years ago by a tiny group of pilgrims determined to carve a new England from wilderness that had long been occupied in highly sustainable fashion by tens of thousands of Native Americans. The immediate burden of dealing with these settlers fell to local chiefs or sachems. But the impacts of this small colonial enterprise's changes to the land 
tracked straight through to today's climate crises. So let's dive in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to give a little shout out to our friends at She Effing Did That Podcast. It's an awesome show about astonishing women. And you know what? We'll let Layla and Gia take it from here. Do you know who really started rock and roll? Do you know who the first Indian-born woman was to go to space? Are you upset that you don't know these significant women in history? We're here to help. I'm Layla. And I'm Gia. And we're the hosts of the feminist podcast, She Effing Did That. Where we share stories of the impactful women we never learned about in history class. Or just don't know enough details about. Every Sunday, we swap stories with a themed cocktail in hand to celebrate our featured women of the week. So bring a friend and raise a glass to the women who run the world. Their stories might even motivate you to do the same. Listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to inspirational women on the internet. Cheers! Because she effing did that. Today, my guest is Alec Weitzel. Alec is a human ecologist and archaeologist interested in understanding humans, both past and present, in their environmental and social contexts. His research interests lie in how humans adapt to their ecological surroundings and how those ecological surroundings are impacted and shaped by humans. Alec is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Connecticut. And prior, prior to UConn, he earned his master's in anthropology from the University of Utah and a bachelor's degree in archeology span from Dickinson College. His dissertation work is focused on the environmental consequences of European settler colonialism in New England, specifically the ecological effects of indigenous land management and its termination. Alec firmly believes that anthropology and archaeology can inform on contemporary issues and guide us towards a better future. He's conducted fieldwork up and down the East Coast of the United States, as well as in Southeastern Europe and he currently lives in Narragansett territory in Providence, Rhode Island. Our topic today is the Native American chief in 17th century colonial New England. And Alec, you know, the irony of every word in that title is not gonna be lost on you. And as an anthropologist, I, I think it's, it's, it's actually appropriate that we call it this, it's very anglicized, it's westernized completely, but the first thing I'd love to ask of you is to tell us what this title would be from the point of view of our subjects. That's an excellent question. Um, so certainly we use the term chief when describing the political leader of the native tribes in much of Eastern North America and really North America in general, um, but the word in the Algonquian language that people in New England would have spoken before Europeans showed up is sachem. Um, so we're talking really about the role of a sachem in Native American society. Um, and of course, even the term Native American is a relatively recent construction. Uh, really, they wouldn't have called themselves that, of course. They would have referred to themselves by whatever tribe they belonged to. They would have referred to themselves as Mohegan or Narragansett or Pequot. Um, and of course, even the term New England, right, is a 
very direct outgrowth of the settler colonial process where colonists from England came to this region and called it New England. Yeah, um, it's as anglicized as it gets, right? Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for, um, you know, that, that introduction. I think a lot about this conversation um, is going to be, on the one hand, familiar to our listeners. But there's a lot that I, I think still bears um, reminding how uh, point of view and perspective, not just cultural and historical, but also this uh, particularly environmentally informed perspective that we're going to take today can really change a very familiar story. And, and that's a really important um, way to uh, always sort of critically question what we think we know so well. Absolutely. Tell us what, what I like to call the, the 101 context. Just what is the state of the region at this time between the native peoples and the European colonizers? on a really high level. Yes, so for this conversation about the role of a sachem in native society, I really wanna focus on the 17th century in Southern New England. This is a, an absolutely fascinating time period with a lot of really interesting things going on. Um, obviously, native peoples had lived in this region for millennia. I mean, 12,000 years at least, um, Native Americans have been inhabiting the region that we now know as southern New England. Uh, there were certainly population movements and replacements and shifts in their societies, political and economic and otherwise. Um, but there's a very long history of native peoples being in this region. But quite suddenly in really the early 1500s in the 16th century is when they would have had their first encounter with Europeans. Um, the first European, at least that we know of, to have arrived in this region was a guy named Verrazano, Giovanni de Verrazano, um, who showed up along the coast of southern New England in 1524. Um, he discovered kind of what we now know as the Hudson River. He stopped in Narragansett Bay here in my home state of Rhode Island for two weeks, continued on up around Cape Cod towards Maine before heading back to Europe. Um, and his accounts... Um, are really the first historical evidence that we have of this contact between Europeans and native peoples. And so then in the decades following Verrazano's voyage, we start to see evidence that more and more Europeans are traversing the coast of New England. Um, there's evidence for fishing expeditions by various French or English or even Basque uh, fishermen but really nobody permanently settles in this region until 1620 when the famous story of the pilgrims uh, happens. And so it's in 1620, which is coincidentally 400 years ago this November. Um, it is. That is yes. not lost on me. I wanted yeah. to be sure we squeezed you in for 2020 release. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, and so, yeah, this is in 1620 is when we have the first really permanent European settlements um, in the part of New England that I'm going to be talking about, at least. And so this time period is one of incredible political, economic and social and cultural shifts occurring in this region. Um, we are able to read some of these historical accounts and look at the archaeological data from this time period and see 
exactly how this process of cultural contact happened and how this process of settler colonialism happened. The introduction of these new colonists with their new political and economic systems, they're bringing new trade goods which have value, um, they've got a certain propensity for violence um, that native folks had to account for. Um, they're bringing new diseases, for example. We know that in the couple of years before the pilgrims landed in what they called Plymouth, um, there was a massive epidemic of some sort that really wiped out entire villages along coastal regions of what is now Massachusetts. Um, so that when the pilgrims finally landed and they established themselves at what they called Plymouth, that was actually uh, a native town called Patuxet that had been entirely wiped out by disease yeah, in the previous right. four years. And I, I feel like I, I've heard accounts or read accounts of, well, the, it's God's providence. It, it, this empty, this empty land, it's, it's yeah. waiting for us. I mean, it's kind of incredibly. Um, yeah, they very explicitly said that this God had cleared the path for them to enter this new world. Obviously, it wasn't the new world. It had been there just as long as the old one. But to them, it was I mean, it's just wonderfully delusional. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was convenient, wasn't it? Certainly for them. Yeah. How does your viewpoint as a human ecologist shape your approach to these events that have been considered by many people from many different disciplines that consider the past? I very much identify as a human ecologist. So I'm formally trained in archaeology and have training in anthropology and history as well. Um, but I see myself as a human ecologist. And what that means to me is that I am very interested in studying humans in their environmental context. And when I say environmental context, I don't just mean the rocks and the trees and the plants and the animals and the climate. I do mean those things. But in addition to that, one's social surroundings, I also consider to be part of the environment. It's this Absolutely. broader view of what the context of an individual or a societal group can be. And I really like to focus on that and how the relationships exist and develop between individuals and their environments in this very broad sense. And so I think that my perspective as a human ecologist really permits me to zero in on these relationships between people and their environments in the broadest sense. And it permits a sort of bigger picture analysis. A lot of times archeologists and historians are very concerned with individuals and specific events um, and very particular slices of time. And that's not really what drives my research. I'm very interested in large scale diachronic processes and large patterns that I can then study and try to use to contextualize our current political or economic or ecological situation today. Yeah, I, I love it. And I mean, well, as an anthropologist, um, I, I would be very surprised if you did not include all the socio-cultural context in with the environmental. <laughs> but I also, um, with, with a similar educational background in anthropology and an archaeological specialty, I really do appreciate it because I think there's often a false dichotomy um, in the academy mm -hmm. between an environmental explanation or th based theory and one that's based on uh, on cultural factors. And I never understood that myself. So maybe I am a closet human ecologist and I'm going to, I'm going to let you know at the end of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you might be. I certainly agree. I might be. 
be. I might be. All right. Well, I certainly do believe in taking every shred of evidence we have to reconstruct what we're trying to, because why wouldn't we? It's really hard to do, no matter Absolutely. how much evidence you have of any one line. And, and they're all you know, uh, useful and uniquely so, but they all come with their own biases that need to be corrected. And so I think checks and balances with all of these fields of study is just a phenomenally um, intelligent way to go when, when you have all those lines of evidence. 100% for sure. Well, what do you say we dive in and we start with a day in the life of a sachem? Yeah. Could you it. tell me what your typical sachem would, would wake up thinking about and in what context, both social and environmental? Absolutely. Um, so if you are the sachem of one of these Algonquian tribes in southern New England, you're going to wake up um, in a village of some sort. Uh, this depends somewhat on the season. There is a, an element of seasonal mobility in a lot of native societies, even into the 17th century. Um, but if it's around this time of year, um, where you're kind of preparing for the harvest, you're going to wake up in a, a horticultural village and you're going to go about your day doing a whole variety of kind of political tasks and filling your political role. And I think it's probably useful to divide this into more internal versus external activities. But fundamentally, either way, your primary concern and the thing that you're going to spend most of your time doing is talking to people. Right? It is your job as the kind of political leader of your tribal group, of your village, to talk to everybody. You're going to talk to your members of your tribe. You're going to talk to your advisors. You're going to talk to other sachems from nearby tribes and villages. You're going to talk to the English and the Dutch representatives of those groups. Um, fundamentally, your role is as a communicator. That's fundamentally um, the key piece of what a sachem does. And so you might um, walk around your village talking to people. Um, you would encounter perhaps men going off preparing to hunt for the day. You would perhaps encounter some men going to clear fields for planting. That was kind of the task that men in native societies would often fill. You would encounter women and children and old people going into these fields where you've got the three sisters planted, maize, beans, and squash. Um, they're preparing those fields for the harvest around this time of year. These people would also be engaged in sorts of craft production, whether that's making pottery or stone tools or fixing up your, your wigwam or your witu, the, the house that you live in. Um, these kind of daily activities that people are engaged in, you are not necessarily engaged in those same activities, but you are discussing them with people. Tell me a little bit about what uh, some of the external communications might consist of. So externally, um, you're still a communicator. You're still engaged in really talking to people but you might receive visitors from other tribes, whether they be messengers from other sachems or other sachems themselves. And you might actually go yourself to visit another tribe or another sachem. Um, I think really there's a neat story from the Plymouth colony that records kind of what an example of this activity might have looked like. Because when the, these Puritan separatists, the pilgrims first landed and they were establishing their town, um, 
a couple weeks went by and they hadn't had any contact with any Native Americans in a kind of the sense of having a conversation with them. They encountered some. Um, but it wasn't until one day when a Native man kind of boldly walked right into their town and greeted them in English and introduced himself as Samoset. Samoset was a sachem. Um, this is kind of a piece that's not often mentioned. But he, I didn't know that. Yeah, Samoset. Um, he wasn't a sachem from the local area, though. He's actually Abenaki. He was from Maine and had come down to visit the Wampanoag, who were the, the tribe in the area of the Plymouth Colony. But that he was Abenaki. He was from Maine. He had been down here for a couple of weeks visiting with Massasoit, the sachem of the Wampanoag. Um, and that he had learned English from some fishermen along the coast of Maine. And his English wasn't great, apparently, but it was good enough that they could communicate. Um, and were they just amazed? I mean, do we have a record of what the English response was? I mean, I can almost imagine them saying, yeah, of course he speaks English. It's the universal language <laughs> or something like that. But, um, you know, I'm only half kidding. I hate to say it. But that's yeah. more the American viewpoint than the English sometimes these yeah, days. But, so. yeah. but they were certainly shocked by this man. The fact that he yeah. very boldly just strode right in. He wasn't wearing much. He was wearing just a, a little piece of leather around his waist and that kind of put them off too at one point in the encounter I they bet. tried to, they put a coat on him did they dress him they oh did my yeah. bradford cover up young man yeah william bradford the governor <laughs> said that it was getting cold as the day went on and they put a coat on him um, that's i'm awesome not so sure that it was because it was that cold is... yeah. <laughs> oh actually you, you almost you would have thought he was getting a little warm in here you know tucking yes. at his collar looking <laughs> looking the other way exactly um but i think this is a really interesting example of what this kind of external role of a sachem might have been. Now, Samoset wasn't the sachem of the, the Wampanoag people, but he was engaging in this kind of role as an ambassador of sorts to the English. And I think that this story of him talking with the English, the fact that he didn't just show up and have a brief conversation and then leave, he spent the entire afternoon and evening talking with them. They, he told them stories about things. They talked for a long time. They ate dinner together. And actually, the, the Puritans tried to get him to leave at nighttime, but he almost refused to with the expectation that he was going to spend the night with them. Um, and so they actually ended up putting him up in somebody's house, and they kind of kept an eye on him all night. They weren't sure about this guy. He just kind of boldly walked into their town. Well, he but was still this wearing their to... clothes, right? Yes. I mean, they didn't want to leave with the clothes. <laughs> yes. Um, but this is kind of, I think, probably indicative of what a sachem would have done in the native societies at this time. When you go and visit another village and another sachem, you're not expected to just go briefly and have a quick conversation and then leave, like we might expect of a politician today. It's a much more drawn out and personal process. You're going to spend the night, or in the case of Samoset visiting Massasoit, you might spend several weeks with this people. Um, so I think this is a really useful insight into how this process of being a kind of tribal ambassador would have happened. Um, they gave gifts to each other, and then Samoset the next morning promised to come back in a couple of days with some beaver skins, and he was going to bring the, the sachem of the local tribe, Massasoit, as well as Squanto, to Squantum, the famous Squanto who helped the the pilgrims plant corn and all of that. And Samoset told them that Squanto spoke much better English than he did. Wow. And, and again, that must have been equally remarkable. Wait, there's more than one yeah. <laughs> who, who speaks our language. Absolutely. Which is kind of an interesting thing that they don't really teach you in history classes, at least when I was growing up, how it was that Squanto 
actually was able to just walk up and speak English to these Puritan settlers. And the fact was that he was actually kidnapped and taken back to Europe several years before. Oh, yeah, we never heard. I mean, uh, look, I'm, I'm, but you think it was bad in your generation. Boy, Alec, what what I learned, you don't want to (laughs) know. Of course, we know who all the heroes were. And, you know, yeah, the Native Americans were really happy that the Europeans came and did what Mm, they did. So that's what I learned. Of course. You've mentioned advisors who played a key role in in the sort of decision-making processes of the sachems. Could you sort of specify a little bit more about this chain of command, how it worked, and, and how advisors were chosen? Absolutely. Um, the whole chain of command, I mean, with the sachemship and advisors and other people is fascinating in a very general sense. Um, as I think I mentioned before, Sachems are hereditary rulers of the tribe. They are descendants from a patrilineal bloodline. That's how they get their authority. Um, That's how they get their status. So if you're a sachem, that means that your father was the sachem before you, your grandfather before him. Um, Things do kind of get interesting. Um, We know, for example, in the 17th century that there were a lot, at least more than you would expect perhaps, um, of women sachems. Um, really? Absolutely. Ooh, tell us about that. <laughs> so the sachemship is still in these Algonquian societies inherited patrilineally. But in the case of perhaps your father dying and not leaving any sons, um, or in the case of your husband dying without any sons or sons who are too young to take over the role of sachem, um, a woman could become the sachem. And we, we even know the names of some of these women from the 17th century. So there's one particularly well-known woman sachem named Witamu. Um, so Massasoit, who was the, the grand sachem of the Wampanoag Confederacy, had an underling sachem named Corbaton. He's this guy who really did not like the English much, but he didn't have any sons. And so when he died, his daughter, Witamu, became the sachem of his tribe, the Pocasset, who were tributary tribe to um, the Poconocet. And, Massasoit's tribe. Um, And she actually commanded potentially somewhere around 300 warriors during King Philip's war and ended up dying during the war um, after a battle happened. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, women could absolutely be sachems in native society. It it doesn't break the patrilineal inheritance system, um, but they can be integrated into that kind of inherited structure. Um, And so that's how sachems get their authority. Um, They are part of a bloodline. um, And other bloodlines of important figures were certainly tracked in a lot of these tribes. Um, A lot of important people in the tribe, whether they be advisors or whether they be women who would then marry the sachem, would also come from important bloodlines. Um, This... uh, idea of inheriting status is certainly one that Native peoples would have been familiar with. Um, so there is an, an, an element of inheritance in a lot of these positions. Um, but even if you are inheriting your power and your authority, it's still not that absolute authority the English would have been used to. You're still getting a sort of mandate from the masses. It's, it's still popular rule that you're answerable to the people within the tribe. And so were there any realms in which the sachem would have absolute authority or, you know, be absolutely obligated to do certain things that he knew about and wouldn't even need to seek the opinion of his people? That's an interesting question that historians have definitely tried to tackle. 
Um, we know that sachems um, could deal out punishments, could deal out justice of various sorts. And some have argued that that is a power that the sachem has that um, is a little bit less governed by the wills of the people. But in my reading of the ethno history, I'm not even sure that's the case. Um, I mean, there are stories of sachems having to confer very widely if they were going to issue death in punishment to somebody. I mean, you had to ask how your advisors thought about that, how your members of your tribe thought about that. Even some sachems would ask the English if they thought that they should kill somebody as a punishment. And so, yeah, you're, you're still absolutely consulting very widely as this communicator on behalf of the tribe. Um, we May do I actually ask for further detail about that? That's really an interesting concept. So what, what kind of case would they consult the English as to whether they should mete out the death penalty or not? I suspect that in cases where the sachem would consult with an Englishman about decisions internal to the tribe, they would have had something to do with the English in one form or another. Um, but I could also see, and I can't, I don't want to say definitively, but somebody like Roger Williams, for example, who was very highly regarded among the Narragansett, um, did in many cases fulfill a sort of advisory role for some of these Narragansett sachems over the years. They would ask Roger Williams what he thought about certain matters. So Roger Williams was originally in Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay and was kicked out in 1636 for spreading dangerous views of Christianity that the Puritans did not like. And he was forced to leave the community actually in the winter of 1636 and ended up spending a couple of weeks with Massasoit and the Wampanoag in what is now Eastern Rhode Island. Um, and some of his followers then came down in the spring, they started to plant, but the, the Plymouth colony actually sent somebody to tell them that they were still too close to the Plymouth colony, they needed to go further away. <laughs> and so Roger <laughs> Williams ended up going across, um, he crossed the river into Narragansett territory. So no longer in Wampanoag territory, but in Narragansett territory. Well, how about the trap, visible trappings of power? Were there any visible markers of authority, you know, in terms of clothing that was worn. I mean, we, we have this horribly um, ethnocentric, stereotypical idea of headdresses and all of that. But, <laughs> you know, what, what was the reality? How did they visually look different? Or, or did they from the rest of their, the people in their tribe? So Sachem certainly would dress a little bit nicer than everybody else in the tribe. They had access to um, more wealth in the sense that kind of their tribe would give gifts to them of wampum beads, um, of nice furs and skins and pelts, um, other valuable metal trade goods perhaps, um, the nicest stone tools and things of that nature. But it's not such extreme differences as the English monarchy would have had to peasants of the time. The inequality between sachem and kind of your everyday member of a tribe was much less than it would have been in Western Europe. What, if any, was the sachem's particular role in the enactment of trade, uh, either amongst native groups or with the Europeans? So this seems to be one of the key roles of sachems in Algonquian society. They are emissaries to other groups in a lot of ways, but particularly as concerns trade. Um, we know that a lot of the earliest accounts of English or other European explorers in New England 
um, they state that whenever they're trading with native peoples for various goods, uh, a sachem generally is present in those encounters. So it seems like the sachem might have been the one who is carrying out these trade missions to the English and other Europeans or just to other tribes in general. Uh, we can probably assume that by extension, that this is a key part of their role in native society. Yeah, it makes sense as the, as the supreme leaders of their tribes, doesn't it? It's a really important economic activity. Absolutely. How about warfare? Sachems definitely participated personally in warfare and raids and these kind of other acts of violence. Um, certainly, we've got a lot of examples of conflict in 17th century New England um, and some stories of things that happened in the past. And it does seem that the sachem was responsible for leading the tribe, um, either symbolically or often personally in war or battle or raids. Um, we know that there's one story from, I believe the 1640s, after the Pequot War ended, the Mohegan and the Narragansett tribes um, were kind of vying for control of the region with each other. Now that the Pequot had been really unfortunately almost wiped out through the Pequot War, I mean, they were annihilated by the English. Um, there was a bit of a power vacuum in Eastern Connecticut, that's now Eastern Connecticut. And the Pequot, or sorry, the, the Mohegan and the Narragansett end up going to war with each other. Um, me and Tanomi, who is the sachem, one of the sachems of the Narragansett, because the Narragansett actually had a dual sachemship where a nephew and an uncle seemed to both hold the power of sachem in their society. Um, but me and Tanomi invaded Mohegan territory with a band of Narragansett warriors and caught the Mohegan under the sachemship of Uncas, who's a very famous 17th century figure. Um, they caught him kind of by surprise. And he quickly formulated a plan with his warriors that he was going to go walk right up to me and Tanomi and challenge him to single combat. Um, and if single combat, single combat, absolutely. Um, and he did. Uh, Uncas strides right up. Me and Tanomi meets him in the middle of the field that their warriors have kind of met on, and the Narragansett outnumber the Mohegan. Um, but Uncas, a very well-known, very ambitious, powerful sachem. Uh, challenges me and Tanomi, who was a little bit younger than him, I believe, to single combat. And me and Tanomi refuses. Um, says that he's got more warriors, he doesn't need to fight Uncas personally. And this led Uncas to drop to the ground. And it turns out that this was a signal that he had agreed upon with his warriors that if me and Tanomi refused his offer of single combat, Uncas would hit the dirt. And that was the cue for the Mohegans to fire their arrows into the Narragansett lines. And the Mohegans won the battle. They routed the Narragansett. Um, me and Tanomi ended up being captured and killed because he was wearing a heavy suit of English armor and couldn't escape as quickly. Um, and so, Oh, the irony yeah. of that is just absolutely layered <laughs> absolutely um, but so this is needless to say we do know that sachems would personally lead men into battle lead their warriors on raids or in warfare um, and would themselves personally take part and actually fight what what was sort of the biggest mistake a sachem could make in going about his daily business I would say that the biggest mistake that a sachem could make would probably be not listening to the people that they represent, not listening to the members of their tribe and to their advisors. They could make decisions that impacted 
um, everybody within the tribe and in other tribes as well. But there's a lot of debate that goes on among historians and anthropologists as to just how much power a sachem really had. Now, when the English are describing these Algonquian political systems, they tend to use the language of monarchy and feudalism to describe this. They refer to sachems as kings and queens and their advisors as princes and princesses. Yeah, right. They refer to things like yeomen and all sorts of other English terms. Um, and that kind of creates, I think, a bit of a false impression that these sachems were monarchs. Um, Roger Williams, I mean, he describes the native political structure as a monarchy, but he also notes that they can't just do anything they want to. They still need to make decisions that the members of their tribe support. They can't do things that people are averse to. They need to be persuaded. Um, and a lot of other English and other writers, Dutch writers even, um, noted aspects of this too, that if you're kind of the people that you represent as the sachem, if they disagreed with you strongly, they would just leave. Daniel Gukin notes this, who's an English writer, that if the people of the tribe didn't like the direction that the sachem was taking things, they would pack up and leave and they would go live with a different sachem. So there's an element of fluidity here that really probably didn't exist in at least Western Europe at this time. Right. Not without a passport. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, well, and that's, that's very interesting. And, and so, yeah, maybe you could just describe for our listeners a little bit about how these um, native confederacies actually were organized and how the individual tribes um, articulated. When we're talking about chiefs, when we're talking about sachems, we are really talking about the leader of oftentimes a village and kind of sur surrounding settlements. Each Kind of settlement in this region had their own sachem. Um, some of these were quite small communities, some of them were larger than others. But we also know that there were, in addition to these kind of regular sachems, you had what are called chief sachems or principal sachems, grand sachems. These are people like Massasoit, who is the famous sachem that the Puritans interacted with um, in the area around Plymouth Colony. Massasoit was the sachem of the Poconoket, his tribe, which is in kind of Eastern Rhode Island nowadays. Um, but he was also the grand sachem of the Wampanoag Confederacy, which is a much broader collection of numerous other tribes that were all governed individually by their own sachems. And so those sachems had to then pay respect and tribute to Massasoit as the grand sachem of this broader confederacy. And it's a really interesting political structure because again, it's not quite like uh, a Western European monarchy of the 17th century. Um, each sachem is in charge of their own community and they are relatively autonomous in a lot of ways. The sachem can decide um, who's going to plant what fields and who has the rights to hunt in what land. And that sachem then collects some aspect of tribute from the people in his tribe and oftentimes then delivers that tribute up to the principal sachem to which he responds. Um, these broader confederacies were often the results of conquest of some sort, where a principal sachem with kind of grand political ambitions would go out and raid or engage in battles with other tribes. And in exchange for not just killing everybody, that tribe would then become subsidiary and tributary to this principal sachem. 
And this was all this kind of structure where you still allowed each sachem of each village to maintain an element of autonomy. They just become tributary to you. And so they're paying you in bushels of corn or strings of wampum, which are shell beads, um, things like that. And so this is a really interesting political structure that we see in these Algonquian societies. It's really not quite like what's going on in Western Europe at the time, um, but it's this more decentralized and kind of localized political system, which is absolutely fascinating to think about. Oh, it is. And it, it certainly isn't um, comparable to what was going on in the contemporary time period in, in Western Europe. But uh, listening to you talk about it, I mean, it's very much the way the Roman Empire expanded, right? They um, enabled local groups to remain autonomous to the extent that they paid their tribute that Rome demanded, and then they were left alone pretty much to to do as they as they pleased. So it's actually a very sophisticated system that it's kind of surprising in some respects that that these European colonists just failed to realize or, you know, I, I don't know. Do you think that they just wouldn't be looking for something so sophisticated or they just somehow failed to see it because the expression of these relationships was so different from what they were used to in Europe? I think they certainly recognized the parallels in some sense, that this was probably an effective way to create a confederacy or a chiefdom of sorts. Um, but I think they were also kind of blinded partly by their view of native peoples as somewhat lesser than them, um, but also by their, just their own cultural biases, that they were very accustomed to this kind of late feudal or early kind of agrarian capitalist economic system with a monarchical political structure on top of it. And so they're trying to sort of export their cultural expectations of that system onto these native polities. And they're using language that they're familiar with. But, and it's led to a lot of confusion among historians because we have to now ask, were these really monarchies? I mean, was the sachem a king of sorts? Did they have this absolute power? Um, but I think that it really is a non-analogous political system. This is not something that really existed at the time. It might have existed in Western Europe earlier, probably existed in places in Eastern Europe at the time. Um, but they really, these European settlers really struggled to understand it because it was just different from their own immediate experience. It, it, there was no analog at the time. And they're trying to, as I said, export, export their own ideas onto it, which don't really fit in a lot of cases. No, as you say, I mean, look, the name they, they slapped on the land says it all, New England. <laughs> That's it. That's all, folks. Yeah. And, and so to the best of our ability to reconstruct from the various streams of evidence that we have, you know, how might our hypothetical sachem have felt about the arrival of these colonists and particularly how might he have tried to respond to their expectations in terms of, you know, economic dynamics? So I think that a sachem in Southern New England in the early 17th century um, would have absolutely tried to seize upon the opportunity of these new arrivals showing up in the area. Um, from the very earliest encounters that Algonquian peoples had with Europeans, 
um, they realized that these Europeans had access to some really valuable items. I mean, things like cloth, things like glass, things like metal. Um, these are all objects that native peoples didn't have access to. And they immediately recognized the kind of value of these and kind of their, um, the potential role that they could play in their own societies. And so they really certainly desired a lot of these trade goods that the English had access to. And that inspired a lot of sachems like Massasoit and many others um, to try to become friends with these English colonists. Um, it was a, it's a politically savvy move. I mean, if you've got these new people who show up and they've got some really valuable things, you want to be friends with them. Um, other sachems though, didn't really share the same perspective. Um, we know that one of Massasoit's chief, or one of Massasoit's kind of lead sachems underneath him was a man named Corbaton. Um, and Corbaton really did not like the English. Um, he very much wanted to send the English back where they came from. He did not trust them. He did not want them around. Um, and so there's this kind of debate that goes on between those sachems who want to befriend the English and use them for their own purposes, access to all of these goods and wealth, um, and even access to weaponry that the English had that they could then use to fight off their kind of ancestral enemies, um, the neighboring tribes. Um, and so this debate goes on between those types of sachems and sachems like Corbaton, who really don't want the English around, they don't trust them, they think that it's going to cause big problems further down the road. And it seems like those in the camp of Corbaton were correct in that sense. Although, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, the, the devastation of the European incursion in North America started even before the, you know, quote unquote, pilgrims arrived and, and the Plymouth colony was settled with that um, amazing uh, scourge, right? I, I don't know, have scholars decided one way or another what it was? I've heard a lot of different things that um, uh, could be smallpox, could be something that's rat born, but I mean, by 1619, uh, it was already pretty much cleared out for them. Yeah, this, I mean, again, we don't know much about that early epidemic outbreak. Um, we know that uh, whenever William Bradford and other um, Puritans are kind of writing about it, um, I think it was Samoset that told them that the plague had come through there four years previously. So that would put it in the year 1616. Um, and we know that there were English travelers up and down the coast. I mean, even John Smith um, passed by Massachusetts. He got um, around, right? I just, he shows up in Jamestown. He, he absolutely like, did. Yeah. You just don't think it's as funny. <laughs> He's, yeah, he was all over the place. Um, and so it seems like one of these early kind of English or other European ventures along the coast there transmitted some disease. That one we don't really have a great sense for what it is. But the next big outbreak that took place was in 1633, 1634, more in the interior. And that one we're pretty sure was smallpox. Um, William Bradford writes about that, that um, in interior regions that hadn't really been hit by the 1616 to 1619 outbreak, um, mortality rate was 95% in some cases. He says that out of a thousand native people in the area that's now Connecticut, more than nine and a half hundred died. So there was just nobody left. There was nobody left to get water. Um, 
They were trying to drag themselves to streams to drink and dying along the way. I think there was even a story I read of two Dutch travelers who tried to pass kind of in interior Connecticut, and they barely made it back alive because these traders relied on the local native populations to kind of feed them and keep them going. And there was nobody left alive. These Dutch traders almost starved to death by the time they made it back to their own settlement. Um, and so the devastation of these epidemics was absolutely incredible. Um, very difficult oh, to comprehend. Oh, it is. I mean, aside from William Bradford's just really gruesome, gory descriptions of the physical ravages, you yeah. know, what he observed in, in these, you know, Native peoples dying from this, it, it's really sobering. And it, it, I think it, it particularly strikes a nerve in these times of pandemic. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a pandemic that was really that deadly. These, yeah, these outbreaks were absolutely devastating for Native societies. And as you're kind of suggesting, it does create these new political situations that these sachems need to navigate. You've got power vacuums in certain areas. It's, it's incredible. You're trying to control access not only to these English and Dutch settlers in the region, but now you're potentially expanding into new areas to take over what were once densely populated regions, but are now almost entirely depopulated the political situation really wasn't all that stable in the 17th century. There's so many variables, so many moving pieces that these sachems had to navigate. Um, I, I don't envy these people uh, their jobs at all. Could, could you just explain to us, uh, you know, what was the Native American concept of economy at the time as compared with, say, that of Europeans? Algonquian peoples in southern New England were definitely not living under the same economic system as the English were. The English economy of this time is in the midst of transitioning from a sort of feudal model from the Middle Ages to an early capitalist model in the modern period. Um, you've got the rise of merchant capitalism and this mercantile trade going on all around the world where private companies um, are establishing themselves to move raw materials from places where these materials are cheap back to European markets where they can profit. Um, you've got these kind of strictly hierarchical economic situations of agrarian production um, in Western Europe at the time. And so it's a very different economic system than what native peoples would have been used to. Um, if you are a native person living in southern New England, you have a certain area of land that you are responsible for farming or that you can farm. Um, the, the men in your family would clear that land um, and the women were the ones who were responsible for planting the crops and tending to them and harvesting them. Um, those crops, I mean, it was largely subsistence based. You use those crops that you grow to survive throughout the year. Um, some of that is being given as a tribute to your sachem um, that then he's using to distribute to others or that he's then giving back to you even in forms of big feasts that would be held. And land at this time is very much your kind of means of production in that economic sense. I mean, it's what you're using to produce things economically. And English people um, were at this time developing more of a private conception of land use and land ownership, where you could... If you owned land, you could hunt on it, you could gather on it, you could plant and farm, you could clear cut it and sell all the timber um, for profit, you could destroy that land in any other way that you want, you could sell it to somebody else, it's your land, you can do with it as you see fit. 
But in native communities in these Algonquian societies, that sort of all-encompassing vision of what ownership of land is didn't really exist. And it's an oversimplification to say that Native Americans didn't understand ownership of property or ownership of land. There certainly were aspects of ownership in Native societies. We don't want to caricaturize them. Um, but their understanding of land ownership had much more to do, at least in um, Cronin's argument, with use rights. You were allowed to use land to hunt, to fish, to gather, to farm. Um, but permanent ownership and inheritance and your ability to sell it to somebody else, your ability to destroy it, I mean, these were things that didn't really quite exist, most likely, in this native conception of land ownership. And we actually have a really great story from the 1730s that relates to this and explains it well, where some Mohegan people, um, the Mohegan were a tribe in what's now kind of central and eastern Connecticut, they actually petitioned the King of England in the 1730s to return some of their tribal territory back to them that had been taken by settlers and colonists over the previous hundred years. And part of their argument for why the English crown needed to return their land to them was that when these treaties were signed with Uncas, their sachem from the 1630s, Uncas was giving away something that he didn't actually own. He was the sachem of the Mohegan. And when he signed these agreements with the English, giving the English rights to use their land, um, he wasn't actually able to sell that land because land, according to the Mohegan and many of these other groups, belonged to the people. It doesn't belong to the sachem. It's not his to give away or sell. It belongs to everybody. And this was the argument that these Mohegans made in the 1730s to try to get some of their land back from the English. Um, so there's a very clear difference in the conception of ownership and how land rights exist in these two societies. And that's probably the clearest difference between the economic systems of these Algonquian groups and these English groups. Because as I said, the land, that is your means of production. That's how you're producing things yeah. in this economic system. Oh, yeah. And the way that yeah. you conceptualize your ability to use that land and own that land absolutely scales up to broader issues in the economics and politics. Yeah, well, you're, I mean, you're right. It's absolutely the foundation of, of uh, what the Europeans wanted with this new place mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of the resources that it, that it held depended completely on how one viewed the, the rights. Absolutely. The Europeans were primarily concerned with that. I mean, the, we always talk about the, the pilgrims, the Puritans escaping England and settling up in, settling in the Plymouth colony. Um, because they were trying to establish their own community where they could have the freedom to practice their own religion, right? But the people who owned the Mayflower didn't just transport the pilgrims across the Atlantic out of the goodness of their hearts, right? This was- Oh no, this was, they were speculative uh, investors. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Come on. This is a, a <laughs> this private, this is, this is an early capitalist venture where they are, are doing this and the expectation that these colonists will a couple years down the line be able to kind of turn a profit for them through this exploitation of these raw materials, the timber and the fish and the, the agricultural products and all sorts of other things that this quote unquote new world had. Exactly. And, you know, my, my specialty for my own dissertation was a little bit farther south down the coast from where you're talking about now is the Jamestown colony settled in 1607 by the English. So actually it was the first permanent English settlement, Alec. <laughs> it wasn't as broadly successful in a commercial sense, of course, as the Plymouth colony or Massachusetts Bay colony. But yes. um, 
yes, I know this is this is another one of those age old debates. I will not open it up. But um, <laughs> listening to you, uh, you know, one other thing that that I feel was a key driver of settlement in that part of the quote unquote new world was we we have a lot of these you know let's call it third sons and onward of the English. Um, and you know the the system of primogeniture meant you know if you aren't the firstborn son you're you're kind of screwed, and this was a place where right they saw they could take all this land and occupy it because it wasn't being used you know mm -hmm. again completely different viewpoint of what the native people would have had and it, you know it's just a clear recipe for disaster. Absolutely, it's that that conception that the native people weren't using the land and that gave the English the right to take it so that they could use it. Um, was used to justify colonization of the entire continent, really the entire hemisphere. And, and, and you know, uh, this land would have looked enormous and virgin to people who had been occupying a, a you know, relatively small and crowded island, crowded in terms of the private ownership system having already um, consumed all of the arable land. Absolutely. And there's just, there was absolutely no place to get your foot on the ladder unless you inherited land as a firstborn son. So yeah, I, I know. I think it, it's really fascinating to to focus in on on these conceptions of land use. Um, I, I'd love to turn our focus to labor. We talk about you know land being the means of production, and obviously labor is required to unlock those mm -hmm. riches. How did Native Americans view the concept of you know sort of work or jobs? Again, in contrast to how the Europeans did. That question really provides some very interesting insights into conceptions of what it is to work or what it is to have a job. I mean, if you went back to the 17th century and asked an Algonquian Native American what their job was, that question wouldn't have really made sense to them. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> they, yeah, they're, they're not, yeah, it, we're so accustomed to this concept of wage labor and this kind of capitalist European economic system that we're still living yeah, on. Yeah, which is um, equally amazing to us. No, it, yeah. it is, yeah. But um, so Native folks, their labor was very much divided among lines of gender and lines of age. That's the specialization that they've got. Um, whereas if you went to the Plymouth colony, you would have somebody who's a, a farrier or a blacksmith or a cooper or something, a miller. Um, these more specialized jobs in this European system, that didn't really exist in a lot of Native groups, um, and certainly not before Europeans showed up. The division of labor was very much that men tended to be the ones who would go out and hunt or trap big game. Um, They're going after the deer and the bear and things like that. Um, they would also clear the horticultural land that the women would then plant. Um, and women then, of course, were the ones planting the land, um, tending to these fields, gathering various resources um, from the landscape. They were doing so with children, typically, and older individuals as well, even older men who wouldn't go on hunting trips anymore. Um, and so this is really the division of labor in most of Native society. You do have certain individuals. Um, we've got some indication that there might have been a sort of warrior class, at least in some tribes. Um, but it's tough to say if this was a permanent job or it's just something that you also did in addition to your kind of baseline labor of hunting and whatnot. Um, 
so sort of like on an as needed basis if there's a, a raid needed on a neighboring tribe the, the the most sort of gifted in those skills could be tapped to do that certainly yes and those were the people who kind of had the most sway over the sachem in making decisions um certain individuals were treated as these kind of if, if you were a, a kind of high status warrior you were also um a close advisor to the sachem interesting i wonder alec if you could give us some examples of how these just catastrophically, I mean, I think that's really an accurate word, uh, different views of land and its resources and the rights thereof and labor and how it would be deployed on the land in different ways. I mean, how did these just fundamentally different worldviews lead to conflict and also just really changing trade relations between these two groups and among native groups i think that a really clear example of how these different worldviews um collided and conflicted and had long-lasting repercussions on the region um, can be found in the case study of the fur trade um, this was kind of an underlying theme in a lot of these early settlements they were really pursuing furs because there was such a market for beaver furs particularly in europe at the time um, the european beaver had been hunted exploited almost to extinction if you wanted a beaver hat in europe you were getting it from siberia somewhere beavers had obviously been in new england for thousands of years just like native americans had um, and Native Americans, we know, had been hunting beavers for thousands of years. Um, beaver pelts were certainly very valuable in Native society. Um, they were worn as clothing, um, stitched together into blankets and things. They were valuable. Um, but there were still lots of beaver in New England up until the 17th century. When these European colonists came with their kind of extractive economic endeavors in mind, um, beavers went extinct in southern New England almost within maybe 30 years. I mean, by the middle of the 1600s, there were no beavers left in southern it's New England. It's unbelievable. And yeah. I mean, and is that, you know, in a, in a nutshell, the difference between subsistence and capitalist resource management? I mean, it's just really something. In a sense, yeah. I mean, the Native Americans, um, I mean, we mentioned Bill Cronin's book, Changes in the Land. Native Americans are known to have been engaging in all sorts of activities that promoted sustainability in a lot of ways. Um, it's an open question as to whether Native Americans really were pursuing sustainability for the sake of sustainability. I mean, there's a lot of conversations about this um, among anthropologists when it comes to indigenous resource management. Um, that perhaps people aren't necessarily thinking long term, but they are engaged in these pursuits that are sustainable and native peoples know that they're sustainable. Um, native Americans in southern New England knew that if they burned the landscape once or twice a year, it promoted kind of new growth forests and ecological succession and all of these interesting patterns that supported larger populations of species like deer, It promoted the abundance of certain fruit species. Um, and they were managing the landscape in very clear ways. Um, and so they know how to do these things. And this creates um, what a lot of people are now calling a regenerative economy. It's got these sustainable relationships with the environment. There's ecological mutualisms that exist. These 
healthy symbiotic relationships between native peoples and other species and their ecosystems. Um, and when you've got the arrival of Europeans, they're certainly not engaged in the same kind of regenerative economy. Um, it's an extractive economy. They're here to take those beavers and transport them back to Europe for profit. They don't really care much about, about the long-term costs of that activity because once they extirpate right. the beavers from Southern New England, they move to Northern New England. And that's exactly what they did. Um, the beaver trade, um, the fur trade for beaver skins had to shift from the coasts, the coast of Southern New England up into the interior, up into Canada even. Um, and with that, all sorts of interesting economic shifts occurred in Southern New England. This is when the wampum trade really takes hold, for example. Um, but yeah, I think this story of how the beavers really are almost extirpated entirely um, really speaks to this different economic system that Europeans have, uh, the values that they had, their view of what nature is, um, and the role of humans in interacting with nature. Uh, there's some really powerful lessons to be learned there, I think. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I don't know whether there's actually evidence for this, but um, I wonder if, if you might tell us at all about what kind of psychological stress. I mean, forget the sort of um, economic stress that this sort of extirpation of whole species that they had depended on would have created for the Native American population. Yeah, this whole settler colonial venture would have had profound psychological effects on people. I mean, Native Americans themselves have written about this to this day because we're, they're still living in a settler colonial state. So they're still experiencing a lot of these same things. Um, but the psychological trauma that was endured by these people and continues to be endured by Native people is just profound and incredibly um, troubling in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so how did Sachems respond to that? Uh, if their role is this, you know, at its base, like, you know, sort of chief cheerleader and communicator and, and the glue really that's binding together these, these individual tribes and, and jointly the whatever remains of these confederacies. I mean, I know that um, the population was depressed just dramatically and quickly, but how did those who managed to survive the initial, you know, disease vectors adapt? Yeah, so sachems are really caught in the unfortunate situation of having to participate in this kind of downward spiral of their entire world in order to kind of save their tribe as best they can. Um, Europeans are coming very quickly and in force. I mean, the Plymouth settlement in 1620 started off with just 100 individuals and they were down to 50 by the end of that first winter. But within a couple of decades, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of colonists coming over from England to the area around Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth. Um, and that rising tide of new settlers in your ancestral land is something that you need to deal with. Um, and a lot of these sachems were in charge of tribes who were not at full strength anymore from the diseases. Um, they were struggling to subsist even. I mean, if you don't have people to clear the land and plant crops and hunt, um, 
you're struggling to even feed yourself. So then you need to trade with the English for food and engage in this European economic system. You need to become a participant in this system just in order to survive. The fur trade, I mean, speaks to this. It, it, it wasn't so often Englishmen going out and capturing beavers um, and returning to settlements along the coast with their pelts. It was native peoples who were doing this. Native Americans themselves were caught up in the fur trade and they were the ones who were locally extirpating the species. They didn't have much of a choice in the grand scheme of things. They had to participate in this European economic system or just die. Um, and so it leads to this unfortunate situation where you were once um, kind of able to sustainably coexist with your ecosystems, but your forced participation in this new economic model further perpetuates the the downfall of your entire world. Um, it's incredibly saddening to think yeah, about. Yeah, it's a really vicious cycle, right? And I mean, you have to imagine these people were smart enough to realize this was happening. Yeah, I think they certainly would have seen the, the repercussions of it. Um, it's just, if you're the sachem and you're trying to make these tough decisions, do you abstain completely from doing this and allow your tribe to either simply die or be killed by the English or simply be outcompeted and taken over by a different tribe who isn't abstaining from this, right? This is a big thing that you have to navigate as well. Um, part of the big reason that the Pequot were expanding so much in the 1620s and 1630s is because they were trying to control the wampum trade in this region. Um, as the trade for beaver pelts moved further north into northern New England, southern New England became known for wampum production. And the idea was that these shell beads were very valuable in native societies, and they were desired by native groups further north. And so the English would come to southern New England, they would give cloth or metal objects to coastal Algonquian communities, who would then give the English wampum beads that they were producing from shellfish in Long Island Sound and Narragansett Bay. Uh, the English would then take this wampum and bring it upriver, up the Connecticut River, up the Hudson River, and exchange the wampum for beaver pelts. And they would then take oh, those beaver pelts back to England, sell it for profit, buy more cloth and metal, and return that to southern New England. It's this triangular trade system. I, I was just going to say, yeah, it's it, like so many of of the, the whole um, European colonial endeavor throughout the world, frankly, the Atlantic world. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it's really a, a kind of a reflection of this nascent capitalist economy that you need to have somewhere where you can get goods cheaply. That's how you kind of support your um, profit making system back in Europe. And so it leads to these kind of trade exchanges that get a little complicated sometimes. Um, but so the Pequot, were trying to control access to wampum around Long, around Long Island Sound. This is why they were conquering and establishing their confederacy over even the Shinnecock and other tribes down in Eastern Long Island. They wanted to monopolize that access because they wanted to ensure that their tribe would be able to maintain their power and able, their ability to oppose the English should they need to, and so that they could outcompete other tribes in the region, their historic enemies of the Narragansett and some other groups. Um, and so you're, as a sachem in the Pequot, you're trying to outcompete the English or at least keep pace with them. You're trying to outcompete other tribes. And if you don't participate in this system, you are going to be outcompeted by somebody. And it's this terrible choice that you have to make as a sachem. Um, and it leads to all sorts of conflicts, of course. I mean, the, the native people realized that this was not 
the ideal way to do things that something's got to give eventually. And I mean, this is what well, it ultimately wasn't what they were used to. Right. I mean, it's the ultimate last ditch effort at adaptation. Yeah. The, the scale of the, the political decisions that had to be made here were certainly unprecedented. The stakes were much higher. Um, and this is what led to things like the Pequot War in 1636 and King Philip's War in 1675. I mean, Native peoples eventually were realizing that they needed to fight back against the English if they wanted to survive. And King Philip's War was kind of the, the last ditch effort in this region to do so. And just, but too little too late, right? I yeah. Mean, it was just, yeah. Wow. Alec, what is the lasting legacy of this 17th century colonial project? And can you think of any modern correlates? The world that we live in now is the direct result of this settler colonial project of Europe. I mean, going to the Western Hemisphere and colonizing it, going to Africa and colonizing it, going to Oceania and colonizing it. Um, the world that we live in is the product of all of these historical processes that took place over the last 500 years or so. And so right. I'm not sure that something like Europeans encountering such a vastly different economic structure really occur because so many economic and social and political structures around the world have been so profoundly shaped by European colonialism and that colonial project um, that it's very much altered the course of world history. Why do you think it's so important that we study situations like this in that case? There are a lot of reasons why I think that it's important to understand what happened in Southern New England in the 17th century and in any other place um, that witnessed this European Southern colonialism. Um, firstly, it's important simply to understand what happened to the indigenous peoples of this area and of the Western Hemisphere and the world in general, um, because these indigenous peoples still exist today. Uh, the Mohegan tribe is still here. The Pequot tribe is still here. The Narragansett, the Wampanoag tribes, they're still here. And understanding the, the legacy of these events and how they impact their lives today very much matters to Native peoples. Um, so that's a really important reason why we need to understand processes like this and historical events like this. I would also say that the reason that I am so interested in 17th century New England is because it is this cultural clash between two very different socioeconomic systems. that um, You do have this proto-capitalist English and European economy uh, being forced onto native peoples who were not living under such an economy. And I'm really interested in the ecological effects of that. And I would say that a lot of people should be interested in that. Um, today in the 21st century, we're facing unprecedented anthropogenic climate change. I mean, we are in the midst of a climate crisis that is the result of yeah. human actions on the world. And we call this the Anthropocene, um, the time period that we're now living in where humans have had a, a permanent, irreversible, and large-scale impact on the world. But I personally think that Anthropocene is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, it's not just human activity that has led to these dramatic large-scale changes. It's not just human activity in general that has led to climate change. It's very particular human activities. And most of human history, for most of human history, these 
particular economic activities were not taking place. Right? Our climate crisis is very yes. much the result of relatively recent economic processes. And the recent economic processes at work are those of this extractive European economy. And it's exactly these same processes that were exported to New England in the 17th century. And so it's new, the case of 17th century New England is a really interesting example of what happens when you have an indigenous economy with certain aspects of kind of being a more regenerative economy, more sustainability, a little bit more egalitarian. Maybe? There's, yeah, people have talked about these as consensus egalitarian groups. And I don't want to portray them as purely egalitarian, but these native groups had characteristics that allowed for a bit more public input in political and economic systems. They had relationships with their ecosystems that were more sustainable. And so understanding what happens when you have those systems that are then supplanted by this European extractive system has very clear relevance for our current global situation and for addressing our current climate crisis. There are very clear lessons that we can learn from studying these non-European, non-Western, non-industrialized, non-capitalist socioeconomic systems. And we can take those lessons about public inputs in economics, about how much authority a leader should really have, um, about how we view the land and what rights we have over the land, about how we engage in certain interactions with other species in our ecosystems. Um, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this case study that we can then apply to the present day and hopefully, if it's not too late, prevent some uh, of the climate change that is going to persist for the coming decades. Wow, Alec, I, you've just knocked it out of the park in my view. I, I, I think I don't even know how we go from there. I think that's such a beautiful, um, poignant uh, and perfect ending to this episode. But I just want to thank you so much. I thought this was beautifully articulated and it was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had in a while. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say. I very much enjoyed this too. <laughs> It's easy to forget that the Plymouth Colony had such fragile beginnings that no one, least of all the native peoples who had occupied the area for thousands of years, could have imagined that in two short centuries, its roots would have spread across the North American continent. It's also tempting to think of this early English outpost as unique, as historically bound rather than the integral cog that it actually was in a sprawling global web of extractive colonial incursions, which in a very real sense, created the world that we know today. Thanks for joining us and hope to see you next week on Working Over Time. Hey there, you can follow today's guest on Twitter at Elick Weitzel. That's E-L-I-C-W-E-I-T-Z-E-L. We're so happy to be back, and we have an epic season ahead. As always, we're on social media with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. Please share your thoughts and questions with us at Working OT Series on Twitter. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And sharing the show with the history lovers in your life. Thank you so much for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. 
Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Lalliberty, and Ras Cunningham. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe. <laughs>